0: Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to Uh, Confess Your Sins to God in the Privacy of Silent Prayer. Scripture teaches that if we confess our sins, which simply means to admit, to acknowledge, to identify our sins to God the Father, then we are instantly forgiven and cleansed, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can uh, take in the Word of God through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit where it is usable in terms of our spiritual advance uh we so we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer and then I will open in prayer let's pray Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together before your throne of grace. We thank you for our high priest who stands in our stead, who intercedes for us, who is our advocate. We thank you for all that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ as part of the package of spiritual assets which were given to us at the instant of salvation. Father, we thank you for the privilege and freedom we have in this nation to gather together under uh, a free constitution that we can freely teach your word. There are many pressures, many enemies to the truth this at this time in this country, and we pray that you would continue to restrain their influence, that the word of God may go forth unhindered. Father, this week we also pray for Henry Hastings as he is going to be speaking at Baraka Church. We pray that you would uh, guide and direct him, that you would uh Enable him to focus, to concentrate, to clearly uh, teach your word. We pray for the congregation there that they would be receptive to his teaching. And we pray that he would be uh, an honor to his gift and to the training that he has received. Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would uh, challenge us with it, that we might gain a greater understanding of the purpose of uh, the public assembly of the body of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 14. 1 Corinthians 14, where we continue our study on regulations related to certain gifts. Regulations related to certain gifts. Now 1 Corinthians 12, through 14 is one of the most significant sections in the New Testament related to the operation of spiritual gifts. We have gone through these in detail. We have studied the gifts back in chapter 12. There, the purpose of the spiritual gifts is to serve one another in the body of Christ. Ultimately, they are for the purpose of edification, and that operates in different areas depending upon the gift that is uh, being dealt with. Uh, Primarily, the problem in Corinth was a problem with the distortion on the gift of tongues, as I have stated again and again. That was because they brought this pagan baggage with them into the church. Now, the Corinthians aren't any different from modern Americans or modern Russians or modern French or modern uh, anyone. We all get saved, and at the time of our salvation, we have assimilated a truckload or two of human viewpoint baggage into our soul. And the issue in spiritual growth is to exchange that human viewpoint baggage for divine viewpoint truth. And that is not always easy. It is not always comfortable. Sometimes we are challenged to change a lot of deeply held convictions, opinions, they may be political opinions, they may be economic opinions, they may be opinions about relationships, about marriage, whatever they may be, they are challenged by the truth of the word of God. But what so often happens is when people get saved, they have some areas in their life which they know are obviously wrong or erroneous or maybe they have struggled with something that uh, deeply offends their conscience and so they get saved and they go through a period of time in their Christian growth, which are roughly equivalent to those years of spiritual infancy, where under the uh, filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, they advance and grow to some degree and they deal with whatever the most obvious issues in their life are. And then they start getting comfortable. They start realizing that, okay, life is going pretty good. They begin to uh, realize some of the blessings that God has for them in terms of their spiritual life, and they become complacent. Where the real challenge comes in the Christian life is when you have to start addressing the way you think, the way you approach life, because everything in life ultimately flows from how you view ultimate reality how you view god how you view man how you view god's relationship to man and that's why issues such as the essence of god the sovereignty of god uh, human volition salvation grace are also vital to uh, to uh, understand and their implications for everyday life well what happens in with many people is they don't understand the basic model our basic approach, the basic structure of the post-salvation spiritual life. This has always been a problem in, in Christianity. Historically, Christians have had major problems with how you deal with sin, for example. And in the early church, there were many people who thought that baptism, water baptism, literally washed away sin. And so there were many people who refused to be baptized until death was impending, because they were afraid that if they committed certain sins after baptism, that they would not be forgiven. And it's out of that context that you develop a certain doctrine such as purgatory and penance, and that developed in the early Middle Ages, and then in the Reformation period, there were also problems because there was a, initially there was a strong separation of justification and sanctification, which is true. But then they caved into pressure from the Roman Catholic counter-reformation, and we went back into lordship salvation issues that if you commit certain sins, well, you weren't really saved. So how do you know that you are spiritual? How do you know that you are advancing? And this has always been an issue, and at different times in different places in- in the history of Christianity, people tend to come along and say, "Well, if you do this, this, and this, then you have reached spiritual maturity. If this is evident in your life, if you pray if a certain Number of times a week, if you attend church a certain number of times a week, if you give a certain amount of money. We always want to find some sort of measurable, quantifiable standard by which we can measure uh, spirituality. And yet the Bible never gives us that. See, that is a tendency on the part of and in the soul of every human being that flows from our from the sin nature, and it's a propensity towards legalism. Anytime you want hard and fast rules for anything in life that's not clearly spelled out in Scripture, that's that propensity towards legalism. Lord, I don't want to grow up and be a mature believer and have to think on my own. Just give me five things to do, and I'll go do it. And see, this is what dominates so many churches today, and it gets away from teaching people how to think. Well, it operates in two different realms, and the realm that we're seeing more and more today is in the realm of mysticism. And that was the same problem you had in the ancient world. And it was an emphasis on that, that this criterion for spirituality was rooted and grounded in your own sort of intuitive sense, rooted and grounded in how you felt and this this affects things such as worship people come to church and if you sing certain kinds of songs that put you in sort of a certain attitude or frame of mind, then that's defined as worship but if you were to go to another kind of of music that didn't produce that in your attitude or your emotional state that day, then you would go home, or some people will go home and say, well, I just didn't feel like I worshipped this morning. And so we've defined spirituality in terms of some sort of internal barometer that if uh, we feel a certain way or if we respond a certain way, then that's defined as worship, and if we don't, it's not. Another way in which this mysticism has appeared is through the uh, incorporation of certain uh things that have dominated mystical religions throughout the the centuries whatever manifestation they were in in the ancient world it was it was speaking in tongues it was some sort of ecstatic gibberish and it's not unique to christianity i mean this this false tongues that was prevalent in corinth they picked it up from the mystery religions then today you have certain sects in hinduism In Buddhism, in Mormon, among the Mormons, among the Muslims that practice this same kind of thing. For example, the Sufis in Islam, the whirling dervishes work themselves up into this kind of emotional state or trance in order to have some kind of closer experience with Allah. You have the same thing happen in among Pentecostal and Charismatics. It's not Christianity. It is confusing certain elements of Christianity with counterfeit elements that Satan has developed over the centuries in these uh, other religious systems. And so it's nothing more than human viewpoint religion that is brought into Christianity and then Christianity is reinterpreted or redefined in terms of these emotional criteria, in terms of so-called spiritual gifts. Now Paul is having to in a masterful way, deal with this problem in Corinth. And we have to remember that at the time that he wrote 1 Corinthians 14, there is a legitimate biblical gift of languages. It was a supernatural endowment by God the Holy Spirit at the instant of salvation, which enabled these individuals to speak in a language they did not previously understand. Now, there's a lot of misunderstanding about the gift of languages, even in, among non-charismatics. We often think that that it was a gift designed for revelation. That yet, there's nothing in the Scripture to indicate that it was revelatory in nature. And by revelatory, I mean that what was being spoken uh, in this in this unlearned language was new information revealed to that individual by God. Yet that's often what you will hear people say. But there's no basis in the text for that. A second thing that is often distorted is the idea that it was evangelistic in nature. And last time we dealt with the purpose of tongues, the only place that clearly states its its purpose in the plan of God, and that is in 1 Corinthians 14, 21 to 22, where Paul quotes from Isaiah 28:11 and 12, showing that the purpose of the gift was as a sign to Jews of impending judgment. And we went through the details of Isaiah 28 and the prophecy there, and that that was based even further back in Deuteronomy 28 that there was... Um, uh, there was part of the fifth cycle of discipline was that the Jews would hear Gentile languages in the land that God gave them. That's the sign. It wasn't the content. It wasn't a sign to unbelieving Jews because the the content of the speaker's uh, message was evangelistic. It might not have been evangelistic. The only time that we're told specifically... What the content of the uh, tongue speech was is in Acts chapter 2 when it says they proclaimed the mighty works of God. Now, in the context, I think we can infer, since this is 50 days after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension, that the mighty works of God there related to the work of salvation that Jesus Christ had performed on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin, in human history, past, present, and future, so that sin is no longer the issue. The issue is, what do you think about Jesus Christ? So on the, uh, on the day of Pentecost, they proclaimed the mighty works of God, but that could have also dealt with many other uh, things that God had done in human history. So it's a rather general concept so there was nothing necessary, necessary necessarily or in, there was nothing inherent in the gift of languages that meant that what they said was the gospel it was simply a sign that in in a miraculous way these Jews heard gentile languages since uh, and i pointed out last time that that would not be unusual in a place such as ephesus which is where john the baptist's uh disciples were Heard the truth from the apostle Paul, and and they spoke in tongues. Neither would it have been unusual to have heard Gentile languages in the home of Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion in Acts 10, when Paul gave the gospel. I mean, when Peter gave the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and they responded in in faith alone in Christ alone. They they, they they spoke in tongues. So, but it was the miraculous aspect. That's why you get this miraculous gift in the New Testament, because it would not be unusual for Jews to hear Gentile languages, even in Israel. They had Roman soldiers marching the streets of Jerusalem and marching around Israel. So the hearing of Gentile languages uh, would have occurred on a normal daily basis. But the miraculous speech in Gentile languages by Jews, because in many cases they were Jews or in the presence of Jews, this, this miracle would be would grab their attention and thus it would signify that God was doing something. And that is why it was a sign of judgment, and that's all it was. It did not necessitate giving the gospel, preaching the word, giving revelation. It was just the very fact of its, of its existence indicated to the Jews that judgment on the nation Israel was impending because they had rejected Jesus as Messiah. So we looked at the purpose for tongues last time. We saw that its purpose was not revelatory. We've also seen in this chapter that its purpose was not Uh, For self-edification, that it contradicts the purpose of spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is given for the purpose of edification of the body of Christ. It was not given as a prayer language. God does not need to give you some sort of special language to pray to him to indicate some sort of super-spirituality. That whole idea came right out of the pagan mystery religions. And you get that same kind of idea today. The interesting thing is that when the modern Pentecostal movement began at the turn of the century, they expected this gift of tongues to be human languages for the purpose of of uh, communicating the gospel in terms of missionary outreach. And it was only after a period of four or five years when they realized that nobody was speaking legitimate human languages that they began to come up with rationalizations to explain this phenomena in terms of prayer languages or devotion language or or something like that. In fact, an interesting thing, just a side note, no extra charge on the history of the Pentecostal movement is that some, many Pentecostal charismatics have been, have been Traditionally dispensational. But let me point out something here. Here's our familiar dispensational chart. We'll just start at the cross. Uh, the church age begins 50 days after Passover on the day of Pentecost and extends to the rapture. Jesus Christ comes in the air. All who are dead are raised first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up to be together with them in the clouds, and thus we will be forever with the Lord. This is followed eventually by the seven-year tribulation period, which ends when Jesus Christ returns to the earth at the second uh, coming. This is followed by the millennium. What we believe and what is clear from Scripture is that there is a gradual spiritual deterioration. Actually, there are cycles of spiritual deterioration down through church history. But it is, and then um, there is some disagreement among dispensationalists, or rather there's some sort of end-time apostasy before the the rapture occurs, and that's based on the use of the word apostasia and Second Thessalonians chapter two, and I believe that's not talking about an end time apostasy, but that that is another word used for departure for the rapture, and uh, that's just a, that's another issue. But in in dispensationalism, we see these periods, these cycles throughout church history. However, in Pentecostalism, because of their use of Joel two. What they teach is that there's this deterioration and then there's this great end-time revival. I'll put it here, E-T-R. They have this great end-time revival, which they equate to the uh, latter reign. Now, this idea of some end-time revival that must occur before Jesus comes back at all, either the rapture or second coming, is completely inconsistent with dispensationalism and completely inconsistent with the truth. And that's why you've had a breakdown from this in, in, uh, among charismatics in the last 30 years why they've been departing dispensationalism by the boatloads as they finally woke up and realized that there, 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 this whole idea that there was this latter rain, this end-time event that would signal a a new revival, an end-time revival that must come before Jesus returns. What's the problem with that? You're taught well enough. If anything has to happen before Jesus returns, you don't have an imminent rapture. And the rapture is clearly imminent in the Scripture. So what what has happened historically is, is although there were many uh, Pentecostal charismatics who uh, were dispensational. In fact, I think their study Bible, called the Dake Study Bible, I think it's dispensational, has been, uh, their their concept of dispensation has really been under attack. And that gave the rise to the Kingdom Now movement and other things that came out of the late 80s. But that's just a, a rabbit trail to run down to give you a little idea of what's going on today. What happens in churches that believe in the continuation of the gifts and the practice in tongues is that they completely fall apart when it comes to the regulations that are given here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So let's just work through the rest of the chapter. It's not too difficult. It's rather simple. Not a lot of heavy theology here. This is uh, much more practical as Paul addresses uh, issues in the congregation. He, asked, he He wants to drive home the point in verses 26 to 40 that he's established in the first 25 verses. And what he's established in the first 25 verses is the priority and significance of edification, that is, spiritual growth. Edification means to build up. From the Greek verb oikadomeo, it means to construct something or to build something. And technically what this is referring to is the strengthening of our soul by Bible doctrine. And the only way you can learn Bible doctrine is by understanding doctrine. The only way you can understand it is, first of all, through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, but you have to be able to understand the words of the man who is teaching the Scripture. If he is just standing up and speaking gibberish, or if he is speaking in even a legitimate language that you do not understand, then it is meaningless and has no value, no matter how wonderful his presentation may be. I know that I have uh, had opportunities when I've been over in Kiev. I will sit and listen to familiar hymns sung in Russian. I mean, it's a great opportunity to just think about what what it must be like even sitting in a a, um, congregation where legitimate tongues was practiced. You don't understand a thing. It means nothing to you. You can't even enter into it. You can just kind of think through what the words are in English. But it's a distraction to hear a language that you don't understand because you, well, if I'm over there with, with uh, Myers, they've got it up on the, over, the words up on the overhead. So I'm usually trying to figure out how the Russian alphabet works. So it's a complete distraction to to any sort of learning or any sort of spiritual growth unless there is a translation. And once there is a translation, then the utterance has meaning and the utterance has significance. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that in prophecy, which is the giving of revelation, in a language that is understood, this speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men back in verse 3. However, the person who speaks in a tongue Paul says in verse 4, edifies himself, and that's sarcasm, because if it's not sarcasm, then he's saying that it's legitimate for a spiritual gift to to function in terms of self-edification, and that violates the purpose and definition of the gift. So he is truly being sarcastic in many places here. Now he gets down to verse 26, and he says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. And at that point, it's he stops. And see, see what he's dealing with here is that they would all come together with something to say, and they would all say it, so it was a rather disorganized group. This is the same thing that we see back in verse 23. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place, and all speak with tongues... So see, what they were doing is just, just absolute cacophony of, of blather here as one person would stand up singing, another person would stand up, uh, speaking in tongues, another person would stand up with some sort of prophecy or teaching. All kinds of different things were going on, but it was just bedlam in the, in the congregation. Now we think, well that would just be absolutely crazy. Why would they do something like that? because of this pagan background in the mystery religions. What the emphasis was in the mystery worship was that everybody went up into one of their worship areas, into one of the groves outside of Corinth, and they would dance around and they would speak. And it wasn't about the group. It was about whatever was happening to the individual and his own experience. So the emphasis was on the individual, not on the group. And so Paul is castigating them. In verse 26, when he says, look, when you come together, each one of you has a psalm or a teaching, has a tongue or language, has a revelation, has an interpretation. But he concludes with an exhortation, let all things be done for edification. You can't edify the body of Christ if everybody's speaking at the same time and things are in a state of confusion. And this is the theme of this section from verse 26 down to verse 40. The theme is that everything that should be done in the church should be done in an organized, orderly manner. That is the concluding statement. Look down at verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. So this is what brackets all of the instructions in verses 26 to 30 is that the the public assembly of the local church needs to follow certain rules and regulations. Everything needs to be done in an orderly, organized manner. So let's look at the specifics of the operation. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in a tongue. Now, earlier I made a point that the word glosa, which is translated tongue in this in this section the word glossa means language now in this passage it is used in the plural and in the singular in the first 25 verses when it is used in the plural it refers to the legitimate use of the gift. When it is used in the singular, it referred to the counterfeit so-called, uh, tongue in, being practiced in, in Corinth. But here in verse 27, you have a use of it in the singular, but it's referring to the legitimate use of the gift. And why is that? Because of the sentence construction. If anyone, so this is talking about a person, singular. If anyone speaks in a language. See, because of the structure of the sentence, a singular person can only speak in one language at a time. He's not going to speak in two or three languages at a time. So because of the sentence structure here, the word glosa is used in the singular, but that's so that you have noun, verb, agreement. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. So the point that Paul makes here is that when the gift was being legitimately practiced, only two at the most three should ever utilize the gift in a public assembly. Well, if you go to many Pentecostal charismatic churches today, that is not true. Number one, many of them will just emphasize a stay-at-home, pray-in-your-closet kind of use of the gift, which we've already shown is fraudulent. If it's practiced publicly in the assembly, I've been to charismatic churches where they'll say, okay, everybody stand up and they'll sing a hymn or chorus or, you know, praise nonsense, and then they'll say, okay, it's worship time. Everybody worship, and it's just absolute bedlam. Everybody just starts, you know, singing or praising God or articulating all kinds of gibberish out of their mouth and waving their hands in the ear, and it's just, to me, it's the most uncomfortable thing I've ever experienced, and it's, it's really bizarre. But that doesn't fit the pattern here. The pattern says two at the most, three, each in turn, one at a time, and there must be an interpreter present. So there must be someone with the gift of interpretation there to interpret what is said in the unknown language. Otherwise, there's no edification. It's just meaningless. So that is the uh, another regulation that Paul establishes in verse 27. Verse 28, he states, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Now, some people say, well, see, Paul recognizes that if he's speaking in tongues, he can speak to God. Notice the text. Let him stay silent and speak to God. That means there's nothing coming out of his mouth. There's no articulation. Being silent means mute, means no volume, no lips moving, no tongue moving, nothing coming out of the mouth, period. He is simply in silent prayer. So the statement, let him speak to himself and to God, is an expression of silent prayer. It's not saying he can speak in tongues as a prayer language. It's amazing how many people just can't read English. I mean, you don't even need to go to the Greek to clarify it. It says the same thing in the Greek, verse 28. But if there's no interpreter, let him keep silent. And in many of these cases, there's no interpreter. There needed to be some sort of even with an interpreter, there need, there should be some sort of of uh, criterion or qualification or regulation to. Ch- to double-check the interpretation. I remember when I was in seminary, now I never did this, but I knew guys who would memorize the Lord's Prayer in Greek or they would memorize the 23rd Psalm in Hebrew or some other passage, and they would go to, back in those days, the The uh, hot Pentecostal church in Dallas was Beverly Hills Baptist Church. That was in the early days of the charismatic movement, and so you had... Baptist and and Presbyterian and other denominational churches were going charismatic. And when they would have this worship time and they did, you know, some of them tried to do it biblical and have people stand up and individually uh, speak in tongues. These guys would stand up and they would just recite the 23rd Psalm or the uh, Lord's Prayer, or whatever in Greek or Hebrew, and they would receive the most bizarre interpretations from people who would stand up and say, "Well, our dear brother over here was just giving a tremendous discourse on, you know, the deity of Christ," and of course that had nothing to do with what they said. It just what, but it exposed the fraudulent nature of the so-called gift of interpretation. In contrast to these regulations on the gift of tongues in verses 27 and 28, Paul shifts in verse 29 to prophets. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak. Now, the gift of prophecy in the New Testament was similar to the gift of prophecy in the Old Testament. There has been a, an attempt by some of the uh, people in the uh, what's called the Vineyard Movement, the Signs and Wonders Movement. One scholar out of used to be Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Now I think he's down at Phoenix Seminary. Came up with a, his doctoral dissertation at Cambridge, where he tried to prove that the gift of prophecy in the New Testament was less uh, a lesser gift than prophecy in the Old Testament, and that therefore they were not subject to the rules and regulations. Of, of, of prediction that if, oh, well, sometimes they just misunderstand what God's saying. So they just have these impressions and they, they blow it sometimes. They're not always accurate. And, and it, it's just the most absurd thing in the world because it diminishes the significance of God, the Holy Spirit's work in these gifts. Furthermore, there's no basis for indicating that prophecy in the New Testament functioned any differently than prophecy in the Old Testament. It was a revelatory gift that had to do with communicating something God revealed. And so in contrast to the uh, those speaking in tongues, we're told let two or three prophets speak. So there's a limitation there as well. And then the phrase, and let the others judge. Now the others in this particular context is talking about, The alas here, not the heteros, the alas, which is others of the same kind. So this is talking, the others are other prophets. So Paul says, when one prophet speaks, thus saith the Lord. Now he may not have the gift of prophecy, he may be all screwed up. When another prophet speaks, the others with the gift of prophecy were responsible to evaluate what he said to make sure it was doctrinally correct and that he was indeed receiving and had received a message from God. So there was this this uh, basis of evaluation here. It wasn't just on the individual's own authority. There was always a criterion of evaluation. So let two or three prophets speak, and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. In other words, you have one person stand up, and this, and we'll see in the context, you have one man stand up on this side of the church, and he says, this is what the Lord revealed to me, and he gives his message. Well, as soon as when he gets done, if there's somebody else with the message, he needs to shut up and sit down. So that the other person can then speak. In other words, there, you don't dominate. Uh, one person did not dominate the entire worship assembly. Verse thirty-one: For you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the point here is that the exercise of the gift of prophecy was also to be one at a time. Not everybody standing up at the same time with this sort of gib- you know just gibberish and bedlam. And then verse thirty-two, and the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, and that means that the the spirits of the prophets. There is a word numa, and here it's used in a again in this passage as a spiritual gift. It's not should not be understood as the spirits of the prophets, but the spiritual gift of the prophets are subject. To prophets, hupatasa, that's the same word for, you know, we find in other passages such as being submitted to Christ, wives being submitted to your husbands. There was an authority structure here and the other prophets were to oversee the operation of the gift in the assembly so that uh, a false prophet did not come in. So there was a clear standard of order and regulation. Verse 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So here, the reason that is given for having order and regulation is not, does not come out of our experience. Let's go back to our basic creator-creature distinction. Up here, we have the creator. This is God. God is wholly other, completely distinct from the creation. Down here we have the creation, all of the elements in creation, including human knowledge. The authority here that Paul comes up with is not tradition. It's not culture. It's not a matter of human opinion or Paul's personal opinion or prejudices, it's not any human factor. He says the reason we have order in the body of Christ goes back to the essence of God. And because God is a God of order, just look at what he produced in creation. Everything is orderly, everything is is divided into categories, everything is clearly structured. God is a God of order, and therefore, if we are going to reflect him in the public assembly of the church, then we should conduct everything with order and regulation. There should be uh, purpose, there should be meaning, there should be uh, self-discipline. All of these things are involved ...in the public worship of the body of Christ. Because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So this is the standard rule for all churches. Going along with this, verse 34, Paul says, "...let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says." Now, there are some who try to make this relate to tongues, and that is at least generally in the context. It also would apply to the, to prophecy. But it has to do with the fact that primarily in the congregation, the leadership in the congregation came from, in public worship, came from the men. Why? Remember the church is a composite of families. This is something that uh, an argument that I've never, ever heard put forth in any of these discussions. And if you don't realize that you individually, your family and and orthodox biblical Christianity have been under serious assault from the devil through through. Modern, the modern feminist movement, then you've had your head buried somewhere. I mean, we are under incredible assault right now. And some of this I'm going to bring out in our study on Christology in a few weeks, but, uh, this is something that has, is now manifesting itself, the same idea in terms of what's going on with the uh, whole sodomite agenda. But, there's this attempt ever since the fall for a subversion of male leadership. Now, the Bible emphasizes male leadership in the home and male leadership in the church. That doesn't mean it's, it's because the male leadership is always better, superior, the men are more intelligent, more capable, more talented. That's not true. In many cases, I, in fact, I've, I've heard some women teach the scriptures in a much better way and they're much more knowledgeable than many men that I've heard it has nothing to do with inherent ability iq talent or anything else it has to do with the fact that god has structured reality a certain way and just as the leadership in the home is vested in the husband and in the father and in the male the same is true in the church if you come to a church which is a public assembly of a group of families at least you know today we live in such a fragmented Atomistic American society, we have so many singles now, that has, that's, that's an aberration in history to have so many singles in a, in a congregation. You did not have that in the ancient world and you have not had that throughout most of history. But a, a congregation for the most part is a collection of families and if you have male leadership in the home and then you come to the church and there's female leadership in the church, you see the tension that's created. Because now your spiritual authority at church is different from the spiritual authority at home, and it creates a conflict. And one of the things that I have observed over the years is that, that in America there's a clear trend and has been. I'm not the first one to note this. There are several studies written on, on feminism in, in, in Christianity. And there tend to be and have tended to be throughout history more women than men involved in the church. But if you are a pastor or a church leader and you start putting women into key leadership positions in the church, what will happen is you will feminize the church and you'll run off the men. And I have seen that happen again and again and again. I've had pastors come up to me and they say, well, I understand what the Bible teaches about the role of women in uh, church leadership in the local church. How do I correct this? I've got, uh, you know, I've got. Women deacons, and I've got women doing this, and women doing that. And I say, well, and on any given Sunday, what's the percentage of males in your church? And I've been to some of these churches where I've taught, and I've been in churches where you have 10% of the people who show up on a Wednesday night are men, and the rest are all women. But you've got, you also, and and what happens is the pastors cave into this pressure because there's no male leadership, they just start appointing women to do everything. And if you have any organization that is dominated by, uh, female leadership, it will run men off. But if you have an organization that is dominated by solid biblically based male leadership, it will attract other men as well as women. Now, that's just a practical application and insight. That's not an argument that's set forth in the Scriptures. The Scriptures always ground their argument in the creation, that God created Adam first and then the woman and created Adam as the head, not the woman, and that there is a creation design. And Paul always goes to that creation design for his argument in the structure of leadership. And this is the background to understanding why women were to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak. The parallel passage that we could go to is in 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Here we have a clear emphasis on a distinction between the role of men and the role of women in public worship and in the life of the uh, local church. Verse 8, Paul says, I desire, therefore, that the men, and here the Greek word is on air, the men, the males. It's not anthropos, which could be human beings. That can be a man man in terms of mankind. But here it is on air, and that is the males. I desire everywhere that the males pray. Everywhere lifting up holy hands. And the idea there isn't in the posture of lifting up holy hands. They lifted up their hands. That was sort of the normal cultural way in which you prayed to God, which the Jews would lift up their hands. The emphasis here is not on lifting up hands. The emphasis is on lifting up holy hands. And what, in other words, what we emphasize by Talking about confession of sin and cleansing before we pray. The issue that's, that's stated by the psalmist: If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So the emphasis there is not that men should have a certain posture in prayer, but that 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 posture should be in a status of of um, of being cleansed of sin. First John one nine. Without wrath and doubting, that is absent from sin. In like manner also, the women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. And I'm, I'm not doing a detailed exegesis or study of this passage, but that, uh, what, it, what Paul refers to here was a specific style of dress they characterize, shall we say, the women of ill repute in Greek culture. In other words, the women were not to dress like prostitutes when they came to church. The emphasis was not on their body or their physical attractiveness, and they weren't to dress in a, in a way that was culturally uh, inappropriate, immodest, and one that would create problems with the males in the congregation. Verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness. That's our Greek word, eusebeia, which indicates spiritual, the spiritual life with good works. In other words, the emphasis is on your spiritual growth, your spiritual life, not on, uh, not on fashion, not on how you dress. Verse 11, and believe me, there are some places, you may not believe this being from around here, but I remember when I was, first went to Dallas Seminary, up in Dallas and would attend some of the larger Bible churches there on Sunday morning. It was like a fashion show when you went to church on Sunday morning in some of the more affluent churches in Dallas, and that happens in some places. The emphasis is not on style or dress. The emphasis is on doctrine. Verse 11, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. That's the same idea of verse 34, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, that is, in submission to the authority of the pastor who is teaching in the congregation. And then Paul extrapolates on that idea. What does it mean to learn in silence? Verse 12, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And in the Greek, the construction is clear in english it looks like i don't allow a woman to do this or that in the greek because of the way greek syntax is is, uh, is organized you can mix or shift around your various clauses and infinitives here in order to put stress or emphasis on something and literally this would be translated from the greek to teach i do not permit a woman Or See, it's completely separated by a lot of words. The the first infinitive, to teach, is separated by the rest of the clause from the second infinitive, which indicates that it's not an either-or here, but he is talking about two different things. I don't allow, to teach, I do not permit a woman. Period. He's talking about the teaching of doctrine. As I said when I started this, we don't have time to do a detailed exegesis of, of all of this, but if you trace... The use of didosco in the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy and Second Ti- Timothy and Titus, that's the word translated to teach, Paul is talking about teaching the word of God. It, in, the, in the early church, this was an inherently authoritative position. If you stood up to teach, to expound on the word, then it carried authority with it. This is not talking about a woman teaching in prep school to uh, uh, prepubescent children. It's not talking about a woman teaching in a corporate environment. It's not talking about a woman teaching in uh, elementary school or high school or college. It's talking about handling the word of God. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. So she's not to have any kind of authority over a man. I remember uh, years ago when I was a student at Dallas Seminary, when the seminary allowed the first woman to, to speak in chapel. And you should have heard the kind of uh, tap dancing that was done to get around this passage. But the most egregious thing was when she stood up in the pulpit and said, well, and she misquoted this passage and said, well, I'm not doing this on my own authority, but under the authority of the faculty behind me. Now, it doesn't say that. It says I don't allow a woman to teach, period, or to have authority over a man, In but to be in silence. So women are excluded from... Church leadership by Paul. This doesn't mean that Paul is some sort of, of a patriarchal misogynist and we have to go in and deconstruct the text and do all this postmodern permutations in order to come out with something that justifies, uh, putting women in leadership position. And that is what is happening today and the pressure to do that is felt in numerous, numerous churches and that's why you keep hearing about churches ordaining women and making women deacons and elders and all of these other things, and that is completely violates the principle of Scripture because you have to understand the structure of creation in terms of the authority relationship of men and women. And yes, it has been abused. Yes, men have been abusive in that position of leadership and authority. And yes, uh, that's wrong. But two wrongs don't make a right. It doesn't justify women stepping out in a rebellious position in the family, in marriage, in the church, because men have failed in their responsibility. There were just as many problems with male-female relationships in the culture of Rome and Greece as there are today. It wasn't any different and it all goes back to issues related to the fall, and we've studied that on numerous occasions. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is consistent. We could go back to 1 Corinthians, uh, 10 and our study in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 on the, on the, uh, women in the head covering, and again and again, we have this consistent presentation in Scripture from Genesis through Revelation that there is a distinction between men and women that is more than physiological, it goes to the soul, and that men are to function a certain way, and women are to function a certain way, and men, let me tell you, the Burden of responsibility is on you to grow up as a spiritual leader and be the spiritual leader in the home. And I would say, and I would place the blame. Ninety percent of the problem of radical feminism is on wimpy American males who have emphasized success in business over against success in the spiritual life and in the home. And by setting up that kind of a structure where they've basically abdicated authority in the home, they have created a leadership vacuum that women have moved into out of frustration, out of anger, out of resentment. And so the ultimate responsibility for for this entire breakdown in society in terms of male-female relationship lies at the feet of men who refuse to... Uh, live up to their biblical responsibilities and to grow to spiritual maturity and be the leader in the home and in the local church. So Paul says in verse 34, "...let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak." But they are to be submissive, as the law also says. See, he's not going to the law to substantiate his point. He's saying, as the law also says. In other words, he's doing the same thing I've just done, and that is that he is arguing that this is a consistent position in Scripture From the Torah, Genesis, the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, from the Torah to the present, this is a consistent viewpoint. This is the divine viewpoint on male-female relationships. It's not Paul's personal opinion. And then in verse 35, he has a second idea. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. In other words, if you come to Bible class, ladies, and you hear things that you don't understand, you ought to go home and ask your husband, would you explain that? Now, that puts him on the hot seat. Because now they have to get into the Word and start studying these things and function as the spiritual leader in the home and be able to answer the questions that you're asking them. they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. What a profound statement. How counter that is to modern society, which says, well, it really doesn't matter. Men and women have roles that are completely interchangeable. And if a, guy, if a man can ask a question in church, why can't a woman? Because the Bible says you can't. Because the Bible says that if you don't recognize that you ought to be embarrassed and ashamed when a woman speaks in church, then you are so screwed up in your soul from human viewpoint that you need to spend about 40 hours a week listening to the Word. See, we do not realize the pressure that the world has put on our understanding of male female relationships, and it's 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 just ricocheting today through all of these these issues related to marriage and same sex unions and everything else, and it all boils down to the fact that we have allowed the the cosmic system around us, the human viewpoint philosophies around us, to completely redefine What makes a person a male, a female, the roles in society? And this goes back to things that began in the middle of the 19th century. Verse 36, or did the word of God come from you? In other words, verse 36, he's saying the same thing that I'm saying to you. Are you going to put yourself in an authority over the word of God and say, well, you know, that might have been okay for those people back in the first century, but not today. In other words, you know more than God knows. You know more than the Word of God knows. You have a better idea than the Creator of the universe as to how uh, men and women should relate to each other. But see, that is the arrogant position of modern man and modern women, is that they want to judge the Word of God, and they want to bring all of these presuppositions related to uh equality, now there's nothing wrong, in fact, I want to emphasize this, that women should, if if a woman is doing one job and a man is doing the same job, they ought to be paid the same. But, on the other hand, there are distinctions in the home and in the church and in life in terms of male and female roles, and it goes back to differences in male and female souls and how they were created at the beginning in terms of their uh, expression of the image of God in men and women. So, verse 36 is emphasizing the point that when you contradict the word, you're putting yourself in a pos- in an arrogant position of judging the word of God. For and you're putting yourself in the same position of Eve when. When Satan came along and said, did God really say, in other words, does God have your best interest in heart when he said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Did God really say that? And what Eve did was she fell for that trap, she fell for the question, and she immediately put herself in a position of evaluating the truth or falsity of God's statement. See, as soon as you start judging what God says, oh, well, maybe that's not true. You're putting yourself in the position of God. You're out of fellowship. You're in carnality, and you're on a downhill slide to destruction in your spiritual life. Verse 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, see, that's the same problem we have today. People who speak in tongues think they're spiritual because they speak in tongues. And that's the problem in Corinth. They thought that if they had certain spiritual gifts, certain manifestations, then they were were spiritual, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Spirituality has to do with your relationship to the Holy Spirit. Well, first of all, your relationship to Christ by trusting in Christ as your Savior. And secondly, your relationship to the Holy Spirit, whether you're walking by the Spirit or not. So in verse 37, if anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandment of the Lord. In other words, if you are a prophet and if you are spiritual in fellowship under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, you will recognize the truth of what Paul says. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. That's verse 38. If anyone, uh, does not recognize this or is ignorant, agnoeo, which means to, uh, not have knowledge, to be ignorant, uh, then he is, uh, then he is to remain ignorant. And he is then, therefore, to learn. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. This is his conclusion for the entire section. Desire earnestly to prophesy. But he says, do not forbid to speak with tongues. Now, the reason he says that is because the gift is still operational. But he goes to the plural. Once again, the plural is the legitimate use of the gift. So he says, Uh, Put the emphasis on prophecy, because that's where edification lies, but don't forbid someone to speak with tongues across the board, because if you follow the regulations during that period of history in the first century, then it was legitimate. Conclusion, verse 40, let all things be done decently in order, and that applies to everything that's done in the local church. That applies to teaching in prep school. That's why we've emphasized over the years putting together a a teaching plan, putting together your your outline for a quarter because everything has to be done decently and in order. Well, this concludes our study on spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12-14. to Next week we get into one of the most significant chapters in the New Testament, a lengthy chapter. There's 58 verses in chapter 15, and the purpose of chapter 15 is to deal with the issue of resurrection and the importance of resurrection in Christian doctrine with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the clarity of your word, that we realize that not everything in Scripture is immediately understood, Uh, not everything fits into our comfort zone, but we realize that we must submit ourselves to the authority of the creator of the universe, and we must understand reality as it is, not as modern man in his arrogant fantasies wants to reshape it. Father, we pray this morning that if there's anyone here who is uh, unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty as your substitute. Therefore, sin has been paid for. The issue is not how you feel about your sin. The issue is not about uh, you trying to morally reform your life or get involved in some sort of ritual or join a church or any other human effort. The issue is your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, faith alone. And it it's not faith plus something. It is simply trusting in Christ. And at the instant you trust in Christ as your Savior, you are regenerate. God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you to be justified, and you are saved. You have eternal life. You have an eternal destiny in heaven, which can never be forfeited, never be lost, never can be taken away. The issue is your volition, what you decide to trust in for your salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.